0: So by now, I'm hoping that you've heard about the brand new PodCore subscription that Speech Therapy PD has rolled out. For seventy nine dollars a month, you get over hundred and seventy five hours of ASHA continuing education with nineteen new episodes a month. That's fantastic. Well, they want to make sure that you also know we have a brand new coupon code. So the coupon code is F as in first, B as in bite followed by the number 20, FB20. And that brand new coupon code will give you $20 off the pod course subscription. So you get 175 hours of continuing ed plus an average of 19 new hours a month, all for $59 a year. And we cover everything from early intervention to schools, to adults, to ethics, so be sure to type in F as in first, B as in bite, and then the numbers 20. Enjoy your coupon, or as my kin folks say, enjoy that coupon. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. A speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Cartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina
1: So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com.
0: So to continue our Pediatric Feeding Disorder Month journey, today's guest is like a fairy godmother dream come true for me because we have none other than the amazing Dr. Aaron Ross, the guru behind the Sophie course. Okay, so if you haven't heard of Sophie, then let me give you like a two-second rundown before I get to do the formal introduction. If you have ever worked with a preterm infant, either in the NICU or in early intervention, and you had to worry about what potential etiologies or complications this little one's been through, what they could go through, or what they're presenting with, but you're unsure of which functional evidence-based approach to take next to improve the safety and the quality of their oral feed. Then, friend, that's what Sophie does. It teaches you all that. And then some, so ta-da and like, y'all I'm a fangirl. Dr. Ross is as gracious and kind and has this killer sense of humor. And I'm kind of freaking out because she agreed to come on. So super quick backstory, if you haven't met me, please know that I get a little anxious talking to folks in person, like in real life. Pandemic did not help. And I can fake it till I make it. But trust me, I'm going to go home and overanalyze the conversation later and replay back everything that I said and probably interpret it 14 times more awkward than it actually was. So what it boils down to is I'm kind of terrified to reach out to people and ask them to come on First Bite. Because that's who I am. Awkward turtle. That's my superpower. But that's where my sweet friend and book writing accountability partner, Miss Annalisa comes to the rescue. Y'all, when Annalisa was in grad school for speech pathology, she took Dr. Ross's course and then she reached out and asked her if she would come on First Bite because she knew I would never grow the cojones to actually do that. So seriously, today happened because as fearful as I am, Annalisa is fearless. So Annalise, thank you for being you. And on that note, oh my gosh, we have Dr. Aaron Ross. Huzzah! So hi, Dr. Ross. Thank you for coming.
2: (laughs) You are so welcome. And thank you so much for that incredible introduction.
0: You should have seen me typing it. I was typing and I was like, oh my God, I get to interview her in a couple of hours. (laughs) So yeah, that was cool. I have so many questions, but how in the world did you become a speech pathologist? What made you want to do this? Take me from the beginning.
2: <laughs> All the way back. Well, you know, I'm quite a bit older than you are, so I have to think a long time ago. I guess I always wanted to work with people, so, something in healthcare or teaching or something like that. And I kind of meandered into speech language pathology. I was going to be an LNT school teacher. That's what I had finally landed on. And as part of the requirements, I had to take a normal speech and language development course. And mm-hmm. one of my amazing teachers that Kind of dragged me through this process. Another Dr. Ross, believe it or not, Dr. Frona Ross was teacher of that course. And within the first probably two classes, I kept thinking, wow, this makes so much sense. And this is really fun. And she said to me, you're a speech major, aren't you? And I said, oh no, I'm going to be a teacher. And she said, no, you're a speech pathologist. (laughs) And I said, no, I'm really not. And but it was so incredible and so much fun. And so then I went and I looked up what the requirements were. And then I had to explain to my family that instead of graduating in a year, I was going to sign on for another two plus years to get (laughs) a master's degree in speech and language pathology. So that's how I became a speech language pathologist. I think it was destined to be maybe.
0: Awesome. So, but how did you find this as your niche? Because that's I mean, our scope is ginormous, right? But I mean, what we do is like a subspecialty of a subspecialty. So how did you find your calling here?
2: Well, again, I sort of feel like it found me and I couldn't be happier. So when I graduated with my master's and went into my clinical fellowship year, I was living in Colorado. I went to school in California, but I had moved out here. And had one job that was a halftime job working at a child development center. And literally one block away was the hospital that I still am actually at, Rose Medical Center. And they had a opening Temporary just to cover a maternity leave for a speech pathologist. And I thought, well, that'll be fun. And so I started doing speech and language therapy with pediatrics. And the woman who was on maternity leave, her husband actually was transferred. And so they offered it to me as a half time job. So then I had two half time jobs walking back and forth every day. And over time, the person who was in the intensive care nursery was a physical therapist and she left. And the person that they hired had a pretty strong outpatient practice already. And so she said she would come, but only if she could keep her own outpatient practice. And the manager of our physical medicine department basically said, well, but we have a whole time position up there. So they said, well, Erin, you're a speech pathologist. You can do this. <laughs> so, <laughs> I know. well, you have to remember that this was back in 1990 is when I first stepped foot into the intensive care nursery. And honestly, I didn't know it better. <laughs> I didn't know to say no. So yes, I was basically trained by the physical therapist who didn't know anything about feeding, but knew about infant development. So it's a kind of long and windy road, but that's why I said I kind of didn't choose it. It chose me. I was really lucky within the first year to go to a developmental conference, and there I went to a talk on newborn individualized developmental care and assessment program, the NIDCAP program. We happen to have a training center in Denver. And so I went back to my manager with the physical therapist that I had attended the course with. And we basically said, wow, we really need to do this training, but it's really training for nursing and therapy. So I wrote a proposal to our hospital asking for us to get this training, and they said yes. (laughs) And so I went through that training, and that really changed everything I thought I knew about babies and about feeding babies and working in the NICU.
0: Isn't it amazing how one moment, one course, one class can fundamentally change who you are as a
2: clinician? Yes, as you can see, that continues to happen to me.
0: (laughs) Yes, Tom Franceschi. he actually talks on adults and GERD management. That was my first aha moment. And I will never forget having, he spoke in Newport News, Virginia, in a three-piece velour suit with a silk cravat and pointed toe shoes. And I said, when I walked in, today will be a great day. And that man had me hanging on the edge of my seat with laughter and mirth and wisdom. And I remember that was my first aha moment. So y'all, if you're double dutying and treating peds and adults, I would highly recommend an adult lecture by Tom Francesny. But yes. (laughs) Okay. Also, he's just so funny. So I mean, if you're going to sit through an eight hour course, man, (laughs) but yes. Okay. So we have so much ground to cover today, so let's just jump right in. But why do you feel that preterm infants are at an increased risk for feeding problems?
2: That is such a very broad question, but yes, <laughs> let's start. <laughs> It is, but you know what's really fascinating to me is how many people don't know that. So, as an example, the reason why Sophie became an algorithm and kind of got fleshed out was because I was having a very innocent conversation with a researcher who was doing research in infant feeding. She's a nurse researcher, amazing woman. And I made the comment about, well, yes babies, you know, go home eating, but then they fail. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, well, a lot of babies, when they go from reflexive eating to voluntary eating, if what we've been doing in the nursery has not been good, they basically decide, why would I keep doing this? And they stop eating. And she had never heard that. So she had been doing oh, she probably had 15 publications on infant feeding in the NICU, but had never looked at what happened to these babies after they go home. And so in that conversation, when I was talking to her, I was really struck, number one, by how many researchers really weren't thinking past discharge, people who were working in the nursery trying to make things better, really were not thinking at all past discharge, had never even considered the fact that babies might not keep eating. And Mm -hmm. I think that just solidified my thought that what we do makes a difference, good and bad. And that really pushed me to start to think about how do I get that message out? And how do I see if what I think is true, right? Because I had that opinion, but I really didn't know if what we were doing was putting babies at risk for long-term feeding problems. If they look like they're eating pretty well when they go home, why would they have such a increased prevalence of feeding problems over term babies, right? If they're eating like a term baby is eating when they go home, why would they be so different? that's, I guess, where that whole process started. (laughs) It also helped that I was working in our outpatient feeding clinic. So I was seeing babies in the NICU and babies in our feeding clinic. We developed one actually in 1995 is when we started a multidisciplinary feeding clinic. And that process kept me thinking, I wonder what would have happened to this child if things had been different in the hospital. And we got babies from all over. It wasn't just from our hospital, but it really, you know, started me looking forward from the NICU into can I make things better long term and backwards from my feeding clinic thinking, hmm, I wonder what would be different if anything if we could have done things differently in the hospital.
0: So a huge part of the why behind first bite well this whole thing started because one of my students who co hosted it with me her name's Erin Ford her and I co-host every fourth one together this was her idea but we were coming at it from a home health early intervention perspective now i can't speak for every state but here in south carolina we have this huge disconnect between NICU discharge and the community-based clinicians. We get our state early intervention system does not mandate that discharge medical records, current list of medications, diagnoses, and therapeutic restrictions are part of their intake. Therefore, it doesn't get trickled down to the community-based clinicians. So honest to goodness, we go into these houses with blindsided, you have a script and that's pretty much it. And so we have no idea about what has happened for this child when we receive them. Mm -hmm. And, And trust me, that's something that we've advocated for. And personally, I get the early interventionist involved or, I mean, I know a lot of the NICU SLPs that I'm receiving the patients from now and like, I'll pick up the phone and personally call, but like, that should be best practice, right? I mean, like that should be standard policy that those documents be carried over, but they don't. And that's actually more common than not, but we kind of started this to try to help resolve that and come up with, okay, so what could have transpired? Let's learn those etiologies. Let's understand. But also, honestly, when I first started doing PFDs, I really thought all the diagnoses would be determined and resolved before a kid left the NICU. And what a lot of people don't realize is that they don't. I mean, especially if like the little one's got celiac disease or there's motility issues. I mean, you might not find that out until the kid's older. And that was mind boggling. But I mean, I have gray hair. I didn't take a PEDS dysphagia class. That wasn't a thing. (laughs) So huzzah. (laughs) But yeah. Okay. But what are some of the most common diagnoses that you see in the NICU?
2: Prematurity.
0: Oh, respect to the swallow. Well, I didn't get all the way.
2: (laughs) Well, I think I knew what you meant, but in a tongue in cheek way, I said prematurity because people say that to me all the time. Why does this child have a feeding problem? Oh, he was born premature. That's not a diagnosis, right? I mean, that's what happened, but that's not, that shouldn't be an automatic, that's why he has a feeding problem, which again goes back to, well, why do some. Have feeding problems and some don't. So I think we have a better understanding if you have a cardiac condition, why you would have a feeding problem. If you have a neurologic insult, why you might have a dysphagia problem. But think about there are a lot of seemingly healthy preterm babies who are on thickened feeds, who Mm -hmm. are really being treated as if they have neurologic insults, but Mm -hmm. Don't. And it always then gets me thinking. I mean, I have a PhD in health services research, not in speech language pathology, but the health services research really taps into that. I'm always asking that question, but why? Why would this child be aspirating? That doesn't make any sense in a baby who's now term unless there's something going on. And Mm -hmm. it's very interesting, just as a bit of an aside, and I haven't done podcasts, so I don't know if it's okay if I ramble a little bit, but-
0: Ramble, ramble away. I love a good tangent.
2: (laughs) I was doing a training actually with a group in greece and this literally just happened on sunday and the group that i'm working with over there the people in the training were physicians they were dietitians mostly speech language pathologists or occupational therapists but we had people from lots of different disciplines and i had been talking about tube feeding and you know just feeding in general and one of the participants asked me this question she said So did that baby, I was giving an example. She said, did that baby have a neurologic problem? Well, she actually said, what was his diagnosis, his neurologic diagnosis? And he said, well, he didn't have one. And she said, then why did he have a tube? (laughs) And I said, because he wasn't eating. And she said, but why wasn't he eating if he doesn't have a neurologic problem? And it's something I run into all the time because I get to teach people from all over the world. And then I get to learn from their, the different way that they think about things. And I thought, wow, you know, in the United States, we have sort of gotten to the point where we don't ask that question. I mean, we delayed putting in tubes for as long as we can. But oftentimes when I say, but why is he not eating? People basically say, because he's premature." <laughs> And that's why I kind of answered that way. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) No, it's perfect. I mean, just last week I had the pleasure of interviewing Casey Lewis and she's a NICU SLP out of Texas. And she was talking about how like the neonatologists like push preterm like infants to eat earlier and earlier. And she's like, but the body's not ready. And if we don't do it, then the nurses will. And that's been an ongoing battle. But like when she explained it like that, hats to y'all. My bear came too early. He was in the NICU. I could never work in the NICU. I just, I couldn't, I was a mommy of a NICU baby. I mean, he was there for a night. A night was all I needed. That is it folks. A night I was in, I was out, I was done. He was the fattest baby in the NICU. Six pounds, 12 ounces at 35 weeks. I make a giant baby. But I just, when she described the stress of interacting with interdisciplinary team and everything that went on behind the scenes, I just, that blew my mind. I mean, you've been there. So you've seen that. Is the shift happening between quality versus quantity feeds? Like, Do you see that positive change happening in the NICU or is that still just a pipe dream?
2: No, it is. It is happening. First of all, I would encourage everyone to change the language. So we actually shoot ourselves in the foot when we say quality versus quantity, because it's really not either or. Quality feedings lead to better quantity. Yes. Yes. The neuro linguistics of how I present it to the physicians that I work with really does help them shift their mindset because I don't understand their pressures. I mean, I always feel like, well, I know everybody on my team, we're all working for the same outcome and it isn't, you know, to get them home sooner as much as it is to really help babies and families get back together. And So when I keep coming back to they think this is going to achieve that goal as opposed to helping them to see that we can achieve both goals at the same time. And that's Mm -hmm. been a lot of the training that I've done when I talk to physician groups is to first show them that this is developmental in nature and you can't speed things up. You know, one of the things that I kind of say to get people to stop and think and sort of laugh is if God wanted us to all be able to eat and go home at 35 weeks, we all would be born at 35 weeks.
0: But, but, I, I had a fight. The, sorry, I just laughed because I had a fight like, you know what, just to get to 35 weeks. And yes, that is a very honest statement right there. So yes, ma'am.
2: Yeah. So what I then say is, so we have to actually ask the question, as you're hearing, I ask way more questions than I answer. So we have to ask the question, so what happens in those last five weeks? Right? Some of us are ready to, and that's what I'll get back is, oh, well, you know, but we have babies who eat at 35 weeks. and but I not
0: hardwired. The enteric nerve system of the GI tract isn't fully developed. It's not ready. I mean, things aren't connected for everybody.
2: Right, right. Well, and that's the other thing, right? When you hear people who are starting to panic because the baby's 35 weeks and they're saying things like, you know, well, why isn't he eating? He's 35 weeks. One of the things that makes my eyes roll, although I try not to have the <laughs> outside of my body. It's an internal eye roll. Is when people say, well, maybe her dates were off. And no. what I Yeah, what I say to people is, you know, not every 18-year-old acts like an 18-year-old. <laughs> no, oh, I'm sorry. I can think of with my children. Oh yeah it's the frontal lobe development yeah there are eighteen year olds who you know are kind of acting like fifteen year olds and there are eighteen year olds who you know could be going to m i t for heaven's sakes, so maturation is not the same as age
1: mhm,
2: <laughs> and yet we for some reason with babies make it about but they're thirty five weeks, so a lot of what I do to help with that team understanding is spend an inordinate amount of time talking about normal development. And as you so rightfully pointed out, the GI system isn't fully ready to eat and digest, okay? It's not just the swallowing mechanism, which also is not ready, right? The breathing is not ready. The GI system is not ready. I'm more and more struck by how difficult it must be for their tiny little tummies to be able to tolerate the volumes that we're giving them. And what the doctor says is, yeah, but that's how many calories they need to grow. And what I say to them is, yes, but typically the mother's body would be providing already digested calories. Yes. And so I think a lot of the problems that we have are because of this mismatch between the biological expectations, the adult expectations, (laughs) you know, the professionals in the setting, what our expectations are, and the reality that the baby is living with. And Mm -hmm. trying to keep bringing that up, you know, that, well, normal development is 36 and a half weeks is the average, plus or minus two weeks. And so if he's 36 weeks and not eating everything, it doesn't mean there's anything wrong. You know, it's a lot of reminding, but the other thing that I think I really have appreciated over the years is also being able to take a step back and remember that physicians are expected to know everything about everything, and that's really not fair. <laughs> what I'm trying to do with my physicians is to give them some space so that they are more comfortable handing over, they don't have to be an expert in this because that's what I'm supposed to do.
0: I have a dear friend who's a pediatrician and she and I were having this conversation and she has significant disabilities. I mean, we worked together. She was a pediatrician. She referred me patients. And then I worked with her little one for several years. She said, med school trains me to be a generalist. I am an excellent generalist. She was like, But what I'm finding is that, like, everybody's kind of an excellent generalist, even within their, like, subspecialties, because there's subspecialties within subspecialties. And it was just profound the way she described that. And I was like, yeah, because, I mean, when you think about it, like, even within the world of PFD, there's subspecialists even within our world. And that's really cool. But I I don't know. Folks, if you're listening, be a lifelong learner. There's no way that you're ever going to know it all. And if you think that you know it all, then guess what? You don't. So always pursue the evidence. Always be a sponge, be an open mind, be an open heart, because that's what our patients and their caregivers. Mm-hmm. So sorry, big heartfelt soapbox right there. But yes. Well, okay. So these life experiences... And your knowledge led you to create the SOFI method. So can you kind of talk us through, I mean, the Sophie certification course is an eight hour course, correct?
2: If memory is correct. No, it's actually two days.
0: I thought it was, oh no, I'm getting confused with thinking it was online for one day now,
2: just because of COVID. Sorry, apologies. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. No, that's all right. I actually, I had somebody in my most recent course say that it could be even longer. And I thought, oh, Lordy. And I think it goes back to what you just said, Michelle, so well, which is, you know, the more you know, the more you want to know and the more you understand what you don't know and then you want to learn more. And at some point you have to start to recognize, you know, layers, right? What would be nice for everyone to know? What would be nice for people who then work with babies who have actual problems to know? And then what would it be like, you know? to create information for people who are working with really those subspecialty medical diagnoses that you mentioned. So it's actually a two-day course, although now with the pandemic, I've recognized that Zoom is just really tiring for all of us. (laughs) And so when I do it live, I do it, well, virtual live, I do it across three days so that there are basically three, five, Five and a half hour days. So I'm sorry, I already forgot the question.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God, I love you so much. Can you talk to us about the evidence behind the approach or what, like, the big takeaway points from the Sophie course? Like,
2: yes, because.
0: There's, there's yeah, so much, and please know, I've already pitched your class to all of my grad students because I was having clinic class and they were like, well, what if we want to learn more while we're off for break for the next, like, cause there's like a six week break in between semesters at our university. And I was like, if you want to get into PFD, you want to take this course by this person. And I like totally wow. name dropped you and I could see them all writing it down. So like, <laughs> don't forget about well, Florence you. South Carolina. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much for that. So what Sophie was designed to do, Sophie stands for Supporting Oral Feeding in Fragile Infants. And it's for therapists, but also for nursing staff, for physicians, for anybody who works with babies in the intensive care nursery. And the reason why I say that is especially the first day of the two days is about normal development. It's about development of the family and how feeding provides a foundation for that parent-child interaction. It talks about the foundation of feeding from a learning standpoint, from the basic oral motor standpoint, GI standpoint, respiratory standpoint, all of those different supporting actors, if you will, when it comes to eating, right? You have to be able to breathe before you can breathe and eat. You have to be able to wake up before you can wake up and eat. You have to be able to move before you can use that movement during eating. So we spend a lot of time about normal development and how feeding develops. Then we talk about how babies with medical problems are not only challenged with those challenges of just development, but also that they're lacking some of those basic component parts. So, for instance, if you have to be able to breathe before you can breathe and eat, if you have a respiratory, underlying respiratory condition, imagine how much more challenging it is for those babies. So, we go through a series of some of the common medical problems that are associated with long-term feeding difficulties. So all of that actually is often attended by physicians, just because that completely is in their wheelhouse. Then we move into assessment and how do we assess babies. And when I talk about assessment, we start with just understanding that the baby is our partner, and as is the parent. Sophie actually does most of its work through parents, I guess, is what I would say. I really encourage the family to be the ones who are working with the baby, not so much me. The caregiver is the core.
0: I mean, that's yeah. we talk about yeah. that in early intervention all the time. There's 168 hours in a week. We get an hour tops. The other 167 are with the family. So what are you doing in that hour? That hour is you coaching them into helping their child meet success. Yes,
2: Right, right. So actually, that's one of the core ideas that I start with. It's not mine, it's actually a model that was created by Samaroff and Feast. And it's a model of organization across the lifespan, essentially. And so, without going into all of the details of that, really my job becomes to support the infant until the infant has integrated the skills to be able to do it themselves. And so my expertise is important, but it's not about me. It's not about, can I feed a baby? It's not about, you know, can this nurse feed a baby better than this nurse? It's really about, are we all working so that the baby can eat well with everybody? Because that tells us that it's no longer our expertise that's helping the baby, because the baby's not going to have our expertise forever, right? And the same is true with the families. My job is to support them while they learn to do this independently without me or without anybody else and our expertise. My job is to basically do what I call a brain dump into the family so that they know what (laughs) (laughs) To the best of my ability, I try to do that. So because it's really about understanding that we're partnering with the baby, we're partnering with the family, we need to understand how the baby is communicating with us. And one of the things that we need to be really good at is understanding if they're saying, hey, this is really hard for me. And in fact, it's actually too hard for me. Because one of the places that I think we as adults go wrong is to forget that children are not built like us. So we do things all the time that are really hard for us to do, but we only do it because we know there's a reason. Right. So I'm studying because I want to pass because I want to get a job. I am on a treadmill because I want to lose weight or improve my heart condition or whatever. No, I want
0: my bits and pieces to be perky again. They were perky two children ago. That's why I get on a treadmill.
2: (laughs) I don't think a treadmill going to help with that, Michelle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, it makes for a good laugh. <laughs> for me, I need to be upside down because gravity is actually the bigger problem for me. But, um, <laughs> oh my God. So, what we forget is that children only do things that feel good for them they do most of what they're doing because they're curious and they're you know naturally wanting to know everything about everything and so they're very motivated by that but of course newborn babies are not really motivated by that they're motivated by if i feel good or even feel better then I'm gonna do it. And so where we fall into that trap as adults is we think that, oh, well, they, you know, even if it's something that's really hard for them, like learning about eating, we have to practice and practice and practice so that they get better at it. But one of the key points that I really hit home with Sophie is you have to remember practice is everything, but that doesn't mean that practice makes perfect.
1: Because
2: what you're practicing, we know, builds brain pathways. But what if what we're building are brain pathways for, this is something I don't want to do, which is equally possible. We have all learned to avoid things that are dangerous, that are, Mm -hmm. you know, completely exhausting, overwhelming, really uncomfortable, especially if we don't have an immediate gratification. <laughs> right. A lot of people can't stay on that treadmill until they start to see good results. <laughs> too long that's too far away. <laughs> if I could get on the treadmill, be there for, you know, 20 minutes, hop off and lose five pounds, I would be on that treadmill every single day but that's, you know, you have to have a long-term perspective and Mm -hmm. we forget all of those things when it comes to working with little bitty babies. So that really brings us to, we have to find that balance of this is going to be challenging for you. Anytime you learn something new, especially as difficult as feeding, it's going to be really challenging But I need, as the adult, to make sure that it's not so challenging that it's aversive. And the only way we'll know if it's aversive is really by watching the infant. We'll know if it's aversive if it's a really big thing, like they, you know, aspirate and turn blue and need resuscitation. But... I don't want to get to that point. (laughs) I want to recognize when they're saying, hmm, this is a little hard, can you make it easier for me? And that's really how I conceptualize interventions. Interventions are designed to make a really difficult learning task easier until the child's practice and maturation catch up with what we're doing. That's sort of how I think about it. And so day two is all about, so how do we do that? But we talk about feeding actually happens with organization of the infant. So there are lots of things we can do as interventions to help a baby be more organized so that when we do start feeding, they have a better stable basis for that. So that's sort of the how the training is laid out. And the reason why I feel really passionate about Sophie is because we did actually get to do a research study, and it was terrifying, I will tell you that, (laughs) because I had... The
0: process or the outcomes?
2: (laughs) Well, both, because I actually wasn't a part of the process per se. I had a developmental nurse educator from a children's hospital in Chicago come to me and say... My job is to figure out how do we, you know, help everyone that works at my hospital be on the same page around feeding children, feeding babies. And she said I have a neonatal intensive care unit, I have a cardiac care unit, you know, I have a PICU, and she said I need to figure out how do I provide education? And she said there are lots of different programs out there, but you know, most of the programs are designed for healthy preterm babies when you read all of the different articles that have come out their group that they have hand selected have been healthy preterm babies <laughs> and That's she said gonna... have yeah she said I have term babies that are undergoing head cooling protocols or I have babies on ECMO that when they come off we're gonna have to learn to feed them mm-hmm. I have term babies mm-hmm. and preterm babies and she said, would Sophie work for them? (laughs) And I said, oh, in theory, yes. (laughs) And she said, would you let me test it? And I said, well, I guess I need to, because, you know, I believe in evidence-based interventions and evidence-based practice. And I said, so yes, absolutely. I'll help, you know, in any way I can. And so the research that Sue set up, was to, she wrote the grant, she did all of the hard work and she enrolled babies. And I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I should have those written down in front of me, but approximately 80 babies where all she did was get informed consent to collect all the information from their charts because nothing different was happening with them. And she contact them after they went home. And then I came in and I did Sophie training with a group of their staff members. They then basically said, "Well, we can't train 150 nurses with two full days. It would just be a huge investment in time and money." So they took my information and with some a little bit of guidance from me, we kind of picked out some of the gems, I would say. Their staff already had a very strong developmental Base, and that's what Sue does is provide developmental education. And so they were able to kind of take out a lot of those pieces. And then after they trained all of their staff members using basically a one hour training with 150 staff nurses, then they turned around and they enrolled another about 75 babies. And when those babies went home they started to collect the in hospital data when all of the babies in the study reached between 3 and 5 months post term the research staff contacted the families and gave them a structured questionnaire about feeding problems and you know tried to collect some information about how the baby was doing in that time frame. And we picked that time frame because babies transition out of reflexive into voluntary around two months or so of age post-term. And so we really wanted to capture them when they were at home with parents after that transition period. And so in total, they ended up with I think 125 babies that they had complete data on. And what we found is that. In hospital, differences were really not significant. There was only one thing that was a little bit different, and that was being driven by the healthier preterm babies, and they were able to transition to full oral feedings within a fewer number of days, which to me is not really all that relevant, but because length of stay didn't change. Where we found the big differences was in the three to five month timeframe, where statistically, babies whose parents had been taught about the concepts of Sophie, where the nurses had been using the concepts from the training in Sophie, and using the algorithm, Those babies had fewer feeding problems reported by parents. A fewer percent of them were being seen by a feeding therapist in their homes in early intervention. There was fewer gagging, fewer arching and rejections during mealtime. So to me, that was super exciting. Mm. It was terrifying to think, okay, I'm going to try and see if what I believe is actually true because it could have been that the answer was no. (laughs) So I believe that what we do makes a difference long-term for the babies and for the families.
0: And you got the proof that it did. That is amazing.
2: Yeah. And it was then, like I said, I didn't have to do the hard work. Sue is amazing. And... Her team, we had Christian Chenowitz and we had Holly Schmidt were two of the therapists. They were the speech pathologists who were on that team as well. So they had an amazing group of people who were really committed to this project. And yes, I absolutely benefited because it did show that we were seeing a difference in babies whose parents had been taught about this idea of quality. And that when your baby is saying, this is too hard for me, we can stop and we can make it better. And that's why I always come back to it. It's not quality versus quantity. It's really, you can achieve both, but you have to focus on quality over focus on quantity.
0: So one of the things that I see regularly with the patients that I treat, and I get I treat the least of these, the kiddos who will, may always require a feeding tube because of their prognosis. I mean, pick an etiology, throw a dart, there we're at, right?
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And what I have found is that I had to, within myself, make this fundamental shift that the tube, I had to go from a place of the tube is bad, I have to get everybody off of a tube to recognition that for some of these patients, their prognosis is terminal for peds. Mm -hmm. For some of these patients, their prognosis is going to be debilitating as they get older. I had a set of brothers who as their dendrites and axons grew, the myelin sheath would shear off. And so the motor neuron pathways weren't connecting because the sheath wasn't there to propagate it. And so... But I mean, like recognizing those factors, but instead of coming in and getting aggressive on like non-speech oral motor exercises to stretch this, do this, put this here, but to go to a land of this is joyful, this is positive, we have to have feeding therapy should be positive to neutral. And Mm -hmm. the second you go from neutral to harmful, you're creating negative experiences that will have long-term ramifications of which you don't fully understand the consequences. And when I made that shift, my patients started making better outcomes. Mm -hmm. And even my interactions with the parents changed. I went from this authoritative. You have to do exactly what I'm saying because I am the authoritative figure to help me understand what your family goal is and how can I support that in a realistic framework. Mm-hmm. And that was joyful yeah. to put it in a nutshell. Yes, but yes. Well, okay. Isn't
2: so it, Isn't it wonderful as a therapist to feel joy all the time? I remember yeah. when I first... In feeding and and I really didn't like feeding therapy because because <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't fun. And now I have that experience. And I, I just wanted to say something because when I was listening to you, I was thinking it's such a beautiful reminder to all of us as therapists. And I had a mom that I worked with that also was one of those pivotal people that you talk about that really changed at a core level, some of the things that I thought about and how I express things. Because I had said something to her that she has since said to me was life-changing. And it was because she had a baby who had prayed a and we had been working with feedings and she ended up aspirating and needing a feeding tube. and And Julie was devastated. And she and I were talking and she made this comment about, you know, she's a mother and she can't even feed her child. And I said, Julie, I said, the feeding is the experience. It's not how the food gets in. I said, you're still feeding your baby and everything, Mm -hmm. all the joyful moments of feeding a newborn baby, you still have. It's, you know, how the food goes in is something we will be working on. Um, but don't let the gastrostomy tube rob you from feeling like you're feeding your baby because you still are. Yes. yes,
0: yes. I love how we're recording this and just an hour and a half ago, I was threatening my tiny human pick a hole it's going in because he was going to eat his dinner. It's fun. I can do feeding therapy all day long, but if my little guy is like, mom, I don't want to eat zucchini noodles. I'm like, it's good for you. He wants two bumps. That's how he describes he wants to have big muscles like daddy. He wants two bumps on his arms. I'm like you're only going to get two bumps if you eat zucchini noodles and he's like Ugh. <laughs> But like, if you were talking about eye rolls, bear has perfected the eye roll. (laughs) But okay, so we only have a few minutes left, but I just wanted to talk ever so briefly. You also teach about feeding problems with older babies and some children. Could you maybe just talk ever so briefly about like what some of the most common feeding difficulties are that you see with older babies and younger children?
2: Sure. You know what? That's actually sort of easy. I can dump a whole bunch of things into one bucket, and that is learned aversions. So we have lots of children who had medical things, and they're quote unquote gone. And you brought up one reflex, reflex disease. You know, it may or may not be gone, but the learning didn't go away. So we would get babies whose acute issues were no longer the driving force. Certainly we had a lot of children who had massive sensory issues, but a lot of those actually probably developed sensory issues, at least in part because they missed out on normal Environments because of their medical issues, because they had, you know, they were in and out of hospitals with cardiac issues or with respiratory issues, or, you know, they have neurologic disorders where they take steps backwards as many as they take steps forwards. And so it was much more common that we would have a child who, quote unquote, could swallow, but wouldn't eat anything, wouldn't put anything in their mouth because they didn't trust. The world. They didn't trust their bodies. They didn't trust food. And so I would say that, you know, when at the end of the day, if you take all of the different diagnoses of the medical etiologies, of which there are literally hundreds, it really a lot of what I was doing as a therapist was first undoing that learned aversion. Because once I could get the child to not be afraid, then I was able to build skill. Building skill in a child who wants to learn something new is actually fun and not that difficult. (laughs) What's really hard is to help a child who's only had negative experiences believe that this is going to be different. You know, that's another thing that I say all the time to people. I say, if you think about it, as a newborn baby, let's say on average, babies eat 10 times a day. Most, it's between 8 and 11. So let's just say 10 to make the math easy. In 10 days, they've had 100 feedings. If feeding didn't go well for 100 times, would it not make sense that when we come in and say, oh no, it's going to be fine now, that we have some? Learning that we have to undo. And unfortunately, as you have pointed out, many of us get in early intervention. I've done early intervention in my career, I've done all kinds of different settings. And, you know, we would be lucky if we had a baby at two or three months. But that's already what, 600 feedings or something like that? (laughs) I mean, it's a lot. Let's put it that way. And so I guess I would put it, I would go in that direction that we've got the medical issue that is affecting them in the here and now. But if we really want to prevent things from spinning out of control, we need to support their learning now while we're fixing the medical issues so that they want to learn how to eat later.
0: Mm -hmm. I have 400 different thoughts, and I'm trying to channel my ADD to focus on the one. (laughs) So like... I used this analogy with my students a couple weeks ago. I prefaced it with, okay, raise your hand. Who here has had food poisoning? And like, you know, everybody's kind of like quiet. And then like eventually I'm like, nah, somebody here's puked their brains out all night long after a bad meal somewhere. Give me a hand. One kid threw their hand up and was like, ah, I had... I don't know, bad sushi somewhere. Another kid said that they had like bad tacos somewhere. I was like, did you go back to that restaurant and did you eat that food the next day or within the next couple of weeks? And they were like, absolutely not. And I'm like, exactly. Same mm-hmm. concept, pint mm-hmm. size formed. And then when I said it like that, everybody was like, oh, I was like, yes. But that just, it helped bring that home. But I mean, really truthfully, like, when I was pregnant with Goose, I puked spaghetti noodles out my nose because of morning oh. sickness. Not oh. I, I, I lost spaghetti for a really long time. Yes. <laughs> that. but, yes. like, but that's the reality. So if you're listening and you've never had food poisoning, but you've had morning sickness, you've kind of had food poisoning. And that's the long term. That aversion that you feel is the same aversion that our patients feel, and that brings it home. And then I had one other thought. So so I just finished a book that I've spent two and a half years writing. And it theoretically should be on sale by now. I don't know if it is or not. But I have this term that I've coined and I call it food age to summarize that example that you just gave. If you have a full term baby who's 12 months old, I don't know. Do y'all do smash cake parties out in Colorado? Yeah. Well. Okay. So I'm a Virginia girl and I've never seen a smash cake party like they do it down here. If it's a baby girl, she's going to have her initials monogrammed on a tutu and a bow that's apparently the bigger the bow, the closer to Jesus is the whole concept. And so they put the baby with the tutu and they put him in the high chair and you're going to smash a cake and eat it. And inevitably the tiny humans like what's happening and they're overwhelmed. Right. right? (laughs) Right. So you have baby 2 two twelve 12 months old, but what if that baby was two months preterm? So their chronological age is 12 months, but their adjusted age is 10 months, okay? But then what if that child, God forbid, but what if they had a grade two intraventricular hemorrhage? It was just... Big enough and just located in the right spot that they had developmental delays and some unilateral hemiparesis because twos are tricky. I've seen a lot of threes that are devastating, but twos can be sneaky, right? So, what if they have chronological 12 months, adjusted 10 months, but developmentally they're about 10 months of age? But what if with all of those variables going on, they couldn't quite get the whole concept of eating? So they had to have a feeding tube place. So as opposed to the typical 12 to 15 times oral feed presentations through infancy, those first couple weeks transitioning down to 12 times, transitioning down to 10, transitioning down to the typical eight or nine, what if they only had, like you said, a hundred oral feeds in their lifetime, then it would make sense that their food age, their experience and developmental skills with food is commiserate with a six month old. And so I put that in there because when I explain it to families, like, hey, I get it. Baby Susie Q is going to be 12 months old next Saturday, and you want to have a knockout smash out party with a beautiful smash cake. However, baby girl isn't ready for a smash cake yet. That's still a risk factor for her. But you give me a Pyrex bowl, some food coloring and some pudding, and I can make you a beautiful smash experience. And it's safe at their consistency. And when I explain it like that, it's a win for everybody. And so it's just, like you said, don't phrase it quality versus quantity. It's all quality. It's the package you present it in. That has just, like you hear it, right?
2: I love that whole concept. I had never thought about it that way in reverse, like you just did. And I was like, oh, I will credit you but I will probably be <laughs> sharing that with lots of people Michelle.
0: Holy <laughs> crap. Oh my god. Oh my god. Just broke into a stress sweat. Oh my god! You heard it. I'm not an idiot. People, let the record stand. Okay, that was rose shampoo. Whenever I get stressed and I can't come up with a good strategy, I change my shampoo. And so that was rose shampoo. Yay! <laughs> oh my god. Uh, that's it. I'm done. Put a fork in her, y'all. I can that professional level thing. Oh my god. I'm going to be on call nine on this for like the next month. Thank you. <laughs>
2: uh, oh. You know, it takes a village of us and I don't want to be on an island. I want to be on a continent with a whole bunch, with a very crowded group of people like you, like me. I've already forgotten the name of the person who contacted me was sitting right next to you. And I feel and like lot of. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) I want all of us to be you know to just be supporting each other and to be sharing information about each other with everybody out there because I feel like we are changing you asked me the question do you feel like the world is changing. Are we ever going to get off quantity versus quality? And I think the answer is a resounding yes. And it's because of efforts like this that you're doing, where people all over the world can hear, you know, thoughts that might be different than theirs, might be the same. And if it's the same, then you're you're saying, oh, good, I'm not on an island.
0: <laughs> I'm not crazy. Yes, yes. Oh, my stars. Thank you. Okay. Well, we have hit our time, ma'am. So, Dr. Aaron Ross, thank you so much for coming on First Bite today. Y'all, in case you didn't know it, today's episode is an extra layer, bit special because yesterday my grandmother passed away and my pop, who failed three grades twice because he had to go work the fields. And it's no small fun fact that he worked cornfields because they were really good at making corn mash whiskey. He and grandma worked tirelessly for everything they ever had. They started the marriage on a farm. They moved to a city, which was basically a glorified small town. They put their high school education and all their life savings into real estate. And y'all, they paid for me to go to graduate school to do this thing that I love. Two small town folks with only their high school education, a love for their family, a sense of stewardship that I can only hope to emulate my gratitude is an understatement. Honestly, because of her I don't know if my grandma ever really understood what it is that I do. I mean, explaining our job is complicated on a good day. But y'all, that lady loved fiercely. She loved to tell a cheeky, mildly inappropriate joke. She always had a tuna sandwich and an oatmeal cream pie ready to go. And her face lit up like Christmas when a baby came in the room. So grandma... Thank you. Tell Pop and Aunt Janet, hi, and I am so glad your trio is back together. And now that I'm blubbering, Dr. Aaron Ross, thank you so much. Where can people go to you if they want to learn more?
2: (laughs) They can find me on Facebook at Feeding Fundamentals, or they can come to my website, www.feedingfundamentals.com. And thank you for inviting me. This has been amazing. And um, I'm going to celebrate your grandparents, Michelle.
0: Yeah, they had a lot of love. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So everybody, thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on at first bite podcast on Instagram. Check out the new at chasing the swallow Instagram account. If you want to learn more about the book and check us out on at first bite Facebook page. And as always, we are extra appreciative of when you leave us a review on the Apple podcast. So everybody hang tight. I'm going to switch us over to questions. Okay. Be kind and feed those babies.